Welcome to Shelter Cove. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope that you find encouragement through today's message. For more information, check us out online at sheltercovelive.com or send us a text at 209-340-3115. Welcome. Thanks for joining me today on this beautiful day. As I stand here in God's creation, it's a good day. We call this day Good Friday. Why do we call a day in which we commemorate the suffering and the torture and the death, uh, unjustly as it were, of another human being? Why do we call that Good Friday? Well, we Christians understand that there's something deeper about this day, not just the horrific things that Jesus went through, but there's something else that is deeply good on every level. I want to ask you to join me in the Gospel of John, chapter 19. I'm going to start in verse 16 and move forward from there. Now this text, it deals with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And historically, uh, I recognize that the church has often focused on the physical suffering of Jesus on the cross. Uh, We've spent a great amount of time and detail over the centuries uh, pouring over the details of of the beatings that he endured, the the, the lashes, the number of lashes, 39, one short tradition holds uh, of that which it would take to kill a man. Much has been uh, said about the crown of thorns driving deep into his brow, the nails piercing his hands and feet, that, that long, arduous walk up the hill, lugging that heavy beam that would become his cross, uh, the spear in his side that, uh, that, that showed blood and water coming forth. Uh, and yet, despite all of that attention on suffering, it's remarkable to me that John the author of what is perhaps the best known of all the Gospels, he spends hardly any time at all talking about the details of Christ's suffering, his physical suffering. In fact, the Gospel writers in general don't spend a lot of time talking about that. Why is that? Perhaps it's because the physical suffering of Christ is not the most important thing about that day. Perhaps it's the spiritual suffering suffering of Christ. And what I'm talking about is the fact that if you think about it, the first time we hear Jesus utter anything from the cross is in that ninth hour when the whole world goes dark. It's in the last three hours of his time hanging there when he's not suffering at the hands of men, but he's suffering under the wrath of God to meet the righteous requirement of an almighty God. When there's blackness that envelops the earth and you hear the fateful words from Jesus, Oh God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about it. That's the first thing you hear him say on that fateful day. The entire ordeal, when he is mocked and spat upon, he utters not a word. When, when they lay that scourge across his back, not one sound. As he lumbers up that hill, carrying that wood on his back, nothing from Christ. When they drive the nails into his, into his hands and his feet, when they put that crown upon his head, only silence. Ah, but when he is distant 
from God, when he feels abandoned, when God the Father looks upon his Son and he sees that his beloved has indeed become sin for us, and the Father turns away, that's when Jesus lets loose with a cry of anguish. Why have you forsaken me? This is what it takes to draw this kind of pain from Christ. And the reason is because he has only ever known deep, intimate fellowship with his Father. Think about the beginning of John's Gospel, chapter 1. How does it describe him? It says, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Folks, there is nothing closer than the relationship that, that the eternal Christ has with the Father. They are one. And yet, in this last three hours on the cross, he feels a separation, an abandonment. And that is what is painful to him. Why is it so painful? Because Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. That's the whole theme of John's Gospel. And what is it that affirms that deity? Throughout his ministry, it's the fulfillment of prophecy. Prophecy is the tool by which God uh, asserts the authority of the one fulfilling it. All through the Old Testament, the fulfillment of prophecy affirmed the greatness of God, the authority of God. And in Jesus' own ministry, the fulfillment of prophecy demonstrates that. And I want you to understand that on this day at Calvary, there were many prophecies that were fulfilled. And I would like you to look with me in John's Gospel, and I want to show you some of those fulfilled prophecies. So take a look in John 19, starting in verse 16. John writes, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. The them in that verse, of course, is the Romans. Jesus is now in the hands of the Romans. That word delivered, sometimes it's translated uh, he was handed over. He was delivered over for punishment. That's essentially what God did. God gave over His only Son. Of course, it was Pilate that, hand is, that hands Jesus over to the Romans, but really uh, God used Pilate to deliver up His own Son for judgment. John goes on and he says, So they took Jesus. Notice it says, they took Him. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke say that He was led away. And in the Old Testament, it was Isaiah who says he was oppressed, he was afflicted. He opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And here we've got the first fulfillment of prophecy at Calvary. And it's this, fulfillment number one, Jesus' attitude toward his death. He was led away silently. Is this the natural posture of a man who is about to be executed? Uh, normally, these, these prisoners that were taken to be crucified, historians would record that they went kicking and screaming. They had to be dragged up that hill. They knew what waited for them atop that hill. If it were you, if it were me, I would fight with every last breath I had. I would not go quietly. I would not go willingly, and yet, and yet Jesus does. Isaiah says he was led as a sheep to the slaughter. Folks, you drive cattle, but you lead sheep. Sheep follow innocently and silently wherever they are led. 
And I want you to understand that there's another fulfillment that follows this. And it's fulfillment number two. It's the haste of his death. Uh, Isaiah says that by oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. All of this, you understand, happened very quickly. John says in verse 17, and he went out. This happened like that. I want you to understand this was a mere three and a half hours from the time he stood in judgment before Pilate to the time he was crucified. Today, when, when criminals stand in trial, it could, be, uh, it could be days, it could be weeks, it could be months, it could be years, it could be decades before their sentence is carried out. In the case of Jesus, it was a matter of hours. It happened very, very swiftly. And then, as we notice, he went out. Out of what? Out of the city. Uh, he was not inside the city limits of Jerusalem. He was outside the city. Uh, verse 20 would say that he was crucified near the city. Uh, well, that is a fulfillment of prophecy as well. It's fulfillment number three, the location of his death. Uh, you see, Jesus is the sacrifice for our sin. The law, as it, as it was understood, uh, was very, very strict about how sacrifices were to be conducted. Exodus would tell us that, that burnt offerings were to be taken outside the camp. They were sin offerings. Leviticus talks about the Jewish Day of Atonement, saying that the bull and the goat had to be sacrificed uh, and carried outside of the camp. When you read Hebrews chapter 13, verse 11, it says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sacrifice and, and sanctify the people through his own blood. Jesus was our sin offering. And, and he was pictured in all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament. And John says that he went out bearing his own cross. Think of Jesus as he walked up that hill, carrying the weight, carrying that wooden beam upon his back. How much did that cross weigh? Well, we can't be sure. Uh, literally, the Greek says that he was carrying his own cross. Some estimate that it could have been two to three hundred pounds of wood that he was carrying, perhaps dragging as he uh, traversed those streets and wound his way up to Calvary, would have taken some time. Normally, walking in front of the man who was condemned would be a Roman officer of some sort, holding up a sign that detailed the crime for which the condemned man had been convicted. This served as a warning to all in observance there that crime against the Roman Empire does not pay. And as he carries the wood on his back, it summons to mind a picture from the Old Testament. You may remember the story of Abraham and Isaac. Uh, Isaac, of course, had been promised by God that he would be the father of many, uh, the father of a great nation. And after, after many years of trusting God and waiting, finally one child was given to him and Sarah, his only begotten son. And then God asked Abraham to do something unthinkable. Take your only son, Abraham, and take him up that hill and sacrifice him to me. And the scriptures tell us that as they prepared to uh, make their way up to Mount Moriah, 
Abraham took the wood for the sacrifice and laid it upon his son's back. So here we have the image of a father and his only begotten son walking up a hill with the son carrying wood upon his back. And of course, at the top of that hill is another image of our Savior, the image of a ram caught in the thicket who would be a substitute taking the place of Isaac. So much symbolism. <laughs> I couldn't possibly make this up. The Old Testament vividly presents us with prophetic images of Jesus at Calvary. John goes on, he says that he took this to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Golgotha means the skull. The Latin word, of course, is calvarius. We call it Calvary. Uh, here, northeast of us, where I am in Modesto, is Calaveras County. Uh, that's the Spanish word for skulls. And this place apparently resembled a human skull. And it says in verse 18, there they crucified him. And this is fulfillment number four. It's the manner of his death. Uh, the Old Testament prophesied the manner of death for the Messiah. And that is quite striking because Jews had nothing to do with crucifixion. That was a manner of execution perfected by Gentiles. Numbers 21 in the Old Testament talks about the situation with the Jews in the wilderness where there were snakes that were biting the Israelites. And so they went to Moses. They said, you got to do something about this. We're dying from snake bites. And Moses puts up a pole with a bronze snake uh, on the pole. And he says, if anyone looks at this pole, whoever looks upon this image of the snake on the pole and repents of their sin and, and calls out to God, they will be healed. And for that reason, to this day, the image of a snake on a pole is the image of the medical community, a symbol of healing. And it's this instance in the wilderness that Christ refers to when he talks about in John chapter 3, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And that is a reference to his coming crucifixion, the only kind of execution where a man is lifted up. He talks about it later in John 8. He says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. In John 12, he says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And the next verse says, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. It was important that Jesus died by crucifixion. The Jews did not lift people up in executing them. The Jews' manner of execution uh, often involved throwing them off of a cliff. It involved stoning them. That's how Jesus would have died if the Jews had done as Pilate told them to do. He said, you want him, or you want him executed? Execute him yourself. If they had complied with Pilate, Jesus would have died by stoning. He would have died by being thrown off a cliff. What would that have meant for you and I? That would have meant that Jesus would not have fulfilled prophecy. That would have meant that he was not the Messiah. How ironic that the Jews, in insisting that Pilate execute Christ, they were playing a role in the fulfillment of prophecy and confirming that Jesus was, in fact, who they did not want him to be, their Messiah. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm that prophetically describes a man being crucified. It's from the perspective of the Messiah. And the way that Psalm 22 begins is with this phrase. See if this sounds familiar. 
Oh God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very words uttered by Christ on the cross. John goes on. He says, and with him, two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Notice Jesus is between two others. The other gospel writers describe these as as insurrectionists, as rebels, as thieves, convicts. Well, this is a fulfillment of prophecy too. This is fulfillment number five. It's Jesus' company in death. The prophet Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. And that is fulfilled right here. As Jesus himself is lumped in with common criminals. And in Luke 23, uh, that gospel writer goes into detail about his interaction with these criminals as he's on the cross. One of them mocks him. He says, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us too. Uh, But the other thief rebukes that first robber. He says, be silent. We deserve what we are getting. This man has done nothing. And then he looks at Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And of course, Jesus responds to him and says, today I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. Why does this thief ask him, to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Perhaps it has something to do with what John describes in the next verse. In verse 19, he says this, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. You see, Jesus declared, uh, Jesus was declared not guilty by Pilate six times, and yet Pilate was essentially blackmailed by the Jews which was illegal, of course, until he eventually caved and turned Christ over to be executed by crucifixion. And and he knows he's done something that's illegal, that Jesus does not deserve legally to be crucified. And so he resents the Jews for blackmailing him into this. And to get back at them, he has this inscription made. He does what they want, but he's vengeful about it. And he puts this sign on the cross Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Remember I told you there was a sign that would go in front of the perp on the way to crucifixion, detailing the crime. Well, Pilate knows he's not guilty of any crime. What on earth should he put on that sign? He writes this message here. He's so livid with the Jews, he is mocking them. There is a sarcasm in this sign. Does Pilate believe what he has written? Of course not. He's a pagan uh, Roman. Okay, he's a Gentile, but he knows, he knows that this will really put a stick in the eye of the Jews right here. Jesus of Nazarene, of of Nazareth, the Nazarene. Why does he write that? Because he knows that Nazareth is uh, uh, an utterly unimportant, uh, insignificant town, way, way off the beaten path, above the Sea of Galilee. There's There's a saying that the Jews have, can anything good come from Nazareth? It's insignificant. It's utterly nondescript. And so by writing that, he is saying, here is this man who is from a place from which the dregs of humanity come, Nazareth. He's a no-good Nazarene. He's been butchered, as you can clearly see. Behold this insignificant, pathetic wretch of a human being. This is the king of the Jews. And the Jews are irate. And in verse 20, it says, Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, 
and in Greek, Pilate put this message, Jesus, King of the Jews, in triplicate. He says it three times. He says it in Hebrew. That's the language of religion, the language of Israel. He puts it in Greek. That's the language of culture. Uh, and then he puts it in Latin. That's the language of the ruling class of Rome. Everybody could read this message. Everybody could see that this was the king of the Jews. And perhaps one of the people who is recognizing this is that thief on the cross. John writes in verse 21, The chief priests of the Jews said to the Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answers, he says, What I've written, I've written. He's not going to budge one inch. And that is perhaps how this thief comes to a place of repentance. He reads that sign. It's a testimony that draws this man to the, the person of unequaled importance the true king of the Jews. And then verse 23, it says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, and they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. How many soldiers are here? There are apparently four. Four executioners. And they divide up his clothes, which, by the way, were the entirety of Jesus' earthly possessions. And uh, people generally had four components of clothing. You had uh, the garment, uh, the the, the uh, headpiece, the outer cloak. You also have the sandals and the belt. But there was one other piece, apparently. Jesus had what John describes as his tunic. John says also his tunic. But this tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. It says this was to fulfill the scripture. You see that phrase twice in this text here today, demonstrating how prophecy was indeed fulfilled at Calvary. And this is a quote from Psalm 22, that they would divide the garments of the Messiah, that they would cast lots for his clothing. Fulfillment number six division of Jesus' belongings. Notice they don't tear up the tunic. Why is that? Because this is a considerably important and valuable piece of clothing. It, it took skill to produce this type of garment. Uh, it, there were no seams. If, if you cut this particular garment, it becomes ruined. It becomes worthless. And so they're not going to divide this up. They cast lots for it. Now, I want you to understand a certain type of person wore a garment like this. Only the priest would wear a one-piece, seamless garment like this. Why is that important? Because Jesus is our high priest. Uh, uh, he is the one who would go on our behalf as a priest would, who would go before God in our place to make sacrifice. Hebrews 9 says that when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, uh, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. And John goes on, he said, So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And I read that and I notice something intriguing to me. His mother, the mother of Jesus, is standing there. And yet John doesn't mention her by name. And yet there are two other Marys that he does mention by name. 
if we were to consider that Mary was something special, something divine, someone to be prayed to, someone to be worshipped, surely John would have mentioned her by name, and yet she is simply numbered among two other Marys and not even mentioned by name. But in verse 26, it says, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, and of course we know that to be John himself, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. You see what's happening here is that Jesus is in his final act from the cross. He's taking care of his mother. John's uh, uh, going to look after Christ's mother from this day forward. Jesus' father, of course, Joseph at this point, undoubtedly dead. And so he sees to it that his mother is cared for. In this moment where Jesus is suffering in excruciating ways, he is looking after others from the cross. Love is truly front and center here. And then I want you to notice this. In verse 28, we see the fulfillment of yet one more prophecy here. It's fulfillment number seven, his thirst in death. Notice he says after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said, and here's that phrase, to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. I thirst. Now, I got to be honest with you. When I was a child and I'd hear this part of the story, I, I, I wondered why it was here. It seemed rather random to me, a random detail. Does it mean anything? Well, it does if you're a Jew. If you read this and you're a Jew, you recall a story from the Old Testament. You see, there's another person in Scripture who is a champion, who is betrayed by his own brethren into the hands of Gentiles. His name in Hebrew meant light or like the sun. It's, uh, it's the word Shimshon or Shemesh or what we know him as, Samson. And Samson was betrayed by his own brothers from the clan of Judah. He was bound and he was delivered into the hands of Gentiles, the Philistines, to be executed. And the Philistines took him to the top of a hill known as the Hill of the Jawbone, Ramoth Lehi. A jawbone being a, a component, a piece of a skull. And it is on this hill, in the face of certain death, that Samson would break his bonds and pick up a jawbone and use that implement that represented death to slay his enemy by countless numbers and become victorious over them. And the symbolism here is obvious that Centuries later, there would be another champion betrayed by his own brothers into the hands of Gentiles, taken to a hilltop that would be called the Place of the Skull. And he would there use an implement of death to triumph over our greatest enemy. And yet, that's not the only symbolism in that story. Samson, having exerted himself in victory, would then utter the words, I thirst. And the supernatural hand of God would open up that hilltop, that place of death, and a spring would come forth. And at Calvary, our Savior, our champion, would utter the same words, I thirst, and that place of death would become a fountain of life for you and I. But the way that these Gentiles respond to the thirst of Christ is also a fulfillment, in a sense, prophetically. They say in verse 29, a jar of sour wine stood there, and so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. 
This they did to quench his thirst. And uh, so the way that they respond to him is prophetic. They put this sponge on the end of a hyssop reed and put it to his mouth. Anybody reading that that has any Jewish background would immediately think of Exodus 12. What is that the account of? It's the account of Passover in Egypt. The deliverance of the Jews. The wrath of God would descend on Egypt and so to ensure that the Jewish families would be passed over by God's judgment, they were commanded to take a spotless lamb, to sacrifice that lamb, to take a hyssop branch, to dip it in the blood of the lamb, and to cover their doorposts as a sign for the judgment of God to pass over them. And so here we have this image of a hyssop branch like the one that was once placed into the bloodied body of a lamb in Egypt. Now this branch is held up to the Lamb of God on that cross. And this is a fulfillment. Even the sour wine in Psalm 69, 21 says, They gave me poison or gall for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Uh, they gave me gall. Uh, in Matthew 27, it says they offered Christ gall to drink uh, through the wine, and he, he tasted it but would not drink the gall. Why wouldn't Jesus take the gall? Because gall had a, a dulling effect. Uh, it would either, it would either uh, limit the impact, the pain of the suffering, or it would, it would poison him so that he would die quicker. And Jesus was not to die by poisoning prophetically. And so he refused the gall, but he took the sour wine and his thirst was quenched. And in verse 30, it says that when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He fulfills Psalm 69. And now every prophecy concerning the earthly ministry of the Messiah is fulfilled. He can now yield up his spirit and that's what it says that occurs in verse 30. He gave up his spirit. What does that mean? What does it mean to give up your spirit? That is something that only Jesus can do. It's a supernatural act. You and I can't yield up our spirit. We die of natural causes. Uh, we die when something snuffs the life from us. Jesus died of neither. He yielded his spirit. John 10, 17 and 18, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. People sometimes argue about who's responsible for the death of Christ. Was it the Jews? Anti-Semites have said that for centuries. And for that reason, the Jews have, have, have been the brunt of suffering themselves because people have blamed them for the death of Christ. Some say it's the Romans and their sadistic, violent ways. Others, Christians perhaps, say, no, no, it was our sin. We are responsible for His death. And in a sense, that is true. And yet, the ultimate person responsible for the death of Christ is Jesus Himself because He willingly lays down His life. If He had not yielded up His Spirit, he could have hung there indefinitely because he has all authority. And folks, it is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies that we have read through today that affirms that he is who he says he is and has always been. He is God. 
He is divine. Because we can look at the fulfillment of the prophecies of His crucifixion, we can have every confidence in the validity of His resurrection. But that's a sermon for another day. In closing, I just want to tell you how important prophecy is to the testimony of the gospel. I have an email that I read this morning from a friend of mine, a missionary in Turkey. And he does undercover work there. He leads uh, tours of biblical sites such as ancient Ephesus. And in this message I read that he recently led a tour group through ancient Ephesus, which is an amazing, uh, incredibly well-preserved ruins. And what he will do is he will engage with Muslims as he leads these tours, and he will share the gospel with them under the guise of tourism. And Muslims, as he affirms, are, are not open to the New Testament. They don't consider it to be inspired. They reject it. But they have some regard for the Old Testament. And his method is to open the Bible to Isaiah 53, which they have some familiarity with, but they don't read regularly. And he has them read from his Bible the account of Isaiah 53, which is a prophetic account of the suffering Messiah. And after they have read the words of the prophet Isaiah, which says that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was laid the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. They read that, and then he asks them, who do you think that is referring to? And they logically say the name Isa, which is their name for Jesus. To them, it's, it's quite logical that this Christian is showing them the account of Christ on the cross and how stunned they are when he reveals to them that these words were written 700 years before Christ was nailed to that cross. And he shared with me that upon a recent account, a recent event just like that, Several Muslims, only minutes later, made the life-changing decision to trust Jesus as their personal Savior. It is the fulfillment of prophecy that asserts the divinity, the authority, and the Lordship of Jesus Christ on this day that we call Good Friday. And of course, another amazing event that would follow three days later. Thanks for joining me today. God bless you.